0: Why, hello, welcome to The Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this episode. We got Tom back after a week away. He was not well last week when we interviewed Rosaria. But anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor, I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of things, including uh, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, and I'm a senior editor at Touchstone Magazine. Okay,
1: let's go to you, Tom. I'm Tom Price. I am back. I am, was so sorry to miss the last uh, episode, but I am also very happy to not be in bed <laughs> ill with whatever sick, right. disgusting thing that was going around. But I teach uh, theology, uh, philosophy, ethics, and one of the places is Gordon Conwell Theological
0: Seminary. Okay, Glenn, we'll kick it over to you.
2: And I'm Glenn Sunshine, I am a retired history professor. Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries. These days in charge of curriculum development and uh, doing some content. And I have uh, my own five hundred one c three called Every Square Inch Ministries. Great. We're joined today by a friend, uh, Timon. Uh, Timon, why don't you introduce
0: yourself and tell us a little bit about you uh, and uh, what you do?
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, I'm a uh, longtime listener. Most of the time. Frequently, but uh, irregularly. Um, my name is Tyman Klein. I'm the editor-in-chief at American Reformer, uh, which is a, a publication. Uh, we're going into our third year uh, that's focused on uh, the revival, I guess you could say, of, of serious Protestant social and political commentary that's uh, you know, conceived pretty broadly. We publish a lot of stuff, but it is a, a space for you know Protestants to get back in the game, as it were, and I, I'm sure we'll kind of talk about some of that uh, today. So that's, that's my main hat. My other hat is I'm the Director of Scholarly Initiatives for something called the Hale Institute that is part of New St. Andrews College, um, also a newer foundation. Um, I run that with Jeff Schaefer, who's the director, and it's focused on um developing curriculum, you know, producing content, putting on events. We're working on uh, rolling out several different educational programs and I, I teach at NSA a little bit now, but the uh, the focus of, of the Hale Institute, taking its name from Matthew Hale, is to uh, revive, you know, there, there's kind of been this trend to for Protestants to get back into talking about things like natural law. Um, but this is to, to develop and, and revive, you know, the, the common law tradition, jurisprudence generally, and, and good, solid, you know, Protestant, uh, articulation of those things again, like we used to. So, um, much, you know, kind of resourcement work involved in that, but also trying to, uh, analyze, uh, current legal issues and, and put that stuff into practice also. So those are the, the two main hats, uh, before I started doing this stuff, um, I guess last year, full time, you know, I always wrote things on the side, kind of moonlighting um, in that way, as I think Jonathan Lehman put it one time in one of his, his pieces, but the uh, moonlighting as some kind of writer. Um, but I practiced law for a couple years with the, the Attorney General's Office in New Jersey. Um, I also still have an affiliation with, with Westminster Theological Seminary. We're at the Craig Center there um, as, a, as a fellow and, and working on some historical projects with them. So, uh, but I'm a, I'm a, a well, I, I hate saying recovering lawyer. That's always like the joke. It's kind of like being a Marine, like you can't get out of it. You're just in, or the mafia is probably better. It was New Jersey. Um, so anyway, so that's, my, that's uh, a bit about me and, and what I'm up to these days. Well, yeah, I think the, the the background
0: of law is really relevant considering our topic and the things you do. But our topic today is political theology. And uh, we just want to take it wherever you want to go time it. But I think maybe a good place to begin is, with uh, the canard that, you know, Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, you know, and that yeah. political theology almost sounds like a contradiction in terms. Don't don't we want people to, you know, follow their heart and only, you know, <laughs> uh, obey Jesus if they feel like it and stuff like that?
3: Right, of course, of course. <laughs> and it should be, you know, you should be maximally free to express that however you want Um, you know, part part of what I find interesting about that and that's, you know, that sentiment, I mean, you know, you're you're obviously, uh, it's appropriate for you, Chris, you're painting it in a cartoonish manner. Um, (laughs) but the, you know, it's, but it's, it's funny because it's accurate at, at its root and something I think I was surprised, uh, you know, I grew up in the SBC, broadly evangelical circles, and I kind of thought when I when I became a Presbyterian, I guess eight years ago now, that uh, you know these are these are like the theologically serious people. I mean, I was at, I was at <laughs> Westminster and I was going in the OPC, so you won't find any of this garbage. Well, it turns out it's like everybody you know thinks yeah, this way right. as a default if they haven't worked against it. This is kind of how they they think about political life, um, and that that was curious to me because even people who are high on their confessionalism, doctrinal fidelity. All those things you get to certain articles of the confession in its original form. I don't recognize yeah. the abominations that were added afterwards <laughs> or removed. Um, but you all of a sudden, and people get really uncomfortable. What do you do about this magistrate thing? What do you do about public morality? What's this restriction from the state? You know, uh, encroaching upon you know these freedoms. Shouldn't we operate on the sort of uh, million harm principle. As long as no legs are broken or pockets picked, you know, we should be good to go. Um, so something I do spend a lot of time on now is um, both in the recovery of, I think, what are better arguments or better conceptions of political life generally uh, at the most basic level, just how do, how do we live together? What's our lay of, way of life? How do we adjudicate these things with one another? and the appropriate moral and even religious role of, of government, right, which is which used to be commonplace to recognize. And, you know, later you get into many issues of prudence and all these sorts of things, but the baseline has to be a positive, you know, conception or vision of society and uh, how government is supposed to actively form that uh, as, as power given from God. And this is very uncomfortable for evangelicals, I find, most of the time, although— providentially, there are things coming to the fore currently in our in our country that I think are opening people up to reconsidering you know, maybe certain um, laxity in certain moral areas at least was not the best idea. Um, <laughs> so it is it, people are becoming more receptive at least in a limited sense, but um, I do spend a lot of time trying to um, reintroduce people to ju- you know and a lot of times un- under articulated ideas about Authority and society that uh, that the magisterial reformers and their 17th century progeny, the codifiers of our of our faith in many ways, um, they just assumed and held, but didn't um, didn't mean they didn't think about it. It was not an uncritical reception of you know some medieval scholasticism or whatever you want to uh, say about that. It was it, it, they actually did spend time thinking about it. But there's many assumptions in there that we've lost, and it makes it difficult for us to kind of engage with that material sometimes so i try to i try to work on some of that
0: well you know you mentioned something that is an assumption that we've adopted that's completely uh, antithetical to the christian faith and that's the kind mm-hmm. of utilitarian uh, mm-hmm. harm principle that we associate with mill yeah i remember who was it who was it the guy ralph reed uh, you remember <laughs> remember him with the Christian Coalition back yeah. in the day? Oh yeah. States this, this me a little I bit. You were probably yeah. 3 years old. <laughs> I've, I've read about it. I
3: don't remember him. I've read about it.
0: <laughs> well, I remember one time he 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 was on television or something and he he used the harm principle and said this is probably the best articulation of like, you know, uh uh, you know, uh, uh, the way a, a d- democracy mm. ought to function and I thought, "Are you mm. nuts?" You know, yeah. what what yeah. Are, what's underlying uh, that mm. whole outlook? Well, it's not the Christian faith, for sure. It's something that's been informed by uh, a whole uh, sort of materialist project. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, so that's just one example. But uh, another thought that occurs to me is that so often uh, sort of the salt of the earth, people who are, are in our pews who think that things are commonsensical mm-hmm. uh, and are continually surprised by the latest absurdity that comes from mm-hmm. the left, mm-hmm. Um they don't really understand how thoroughly the their outlook was shaped by the Christian faith mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the ethos of the West mm-hmm. and now that that's gone and that the elites have turned against it um, now we're seeing a whole new thing and people are wondering mm-hmm. what happened and and this is one of the places where they're now ready to go many times. But mm-hmm. hopefully with American Reformer and your work, we'll get back there. But Yes, single-handedly. Single-handedly yes, right. we'll lead evangelicalism <laughs> back to a, a proper <laughs>
3: understanding of the social order. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, well, one point that always strikes me, the uh, I mentioned, you know, the, the revival with Protestants of, of interest in, in natural law, probably over the past decade or so. Maybe, a little, I can't remember when Grable's book came out, but early 2000s, um which I see as an extension of some of the work you know Richard Muller and those guys started uh, several decades ago, and you're kind of getting to to more and more material it's translated uh, all that um one thing that I, you know I'm not a um not a presuppositionalist and I'm not a Ventillian. I did the reading I had to, and i, I moved on you know <laughs> but um right. but one thing that is kind of in the, a similar vein to what a, you know something some of my presuppositionalist friends would say is actually. Something I remember reading in Jonathan Edwards um, in his miscellanies. I can't remember the name now. I wrote or the number now I wrote about it. But the um, he was commenting that you know a lot of these things with natural law, with your reason, which everyone agrees has to be trained, right? It's it's not. There is a sense in which you have the natural intuitions, instincts, and so on and so forth. Um, even even to religion, and we can can get to that. But it does have to be trained. You know, Althusius, John Owen, they all say this. There has to be ways that mainly the scripture, the traditions of the church, and good laws tell you, you know, direct your conscience, direct your thought. And Edwards is just commenting at one point that, you know, we've all grown up and been conditioned by Christendom. You know, this is the mid 18th century. It's not clear to me, meaning Edwards, that this is replicable elsewhere. That's not been conditioned by Christendom. And I think there's a lot to that. And we're seeing kind of the end of that argument being played out and maybe validated, Um, you know, but in a strange way, because of the, you know, what's been implanted in us, uh, you know, the harm principle, Um, is not actually fully operational, even among secular people, because you will see them grappling with this idea that there's something to what they would call a psychological health. I mean, that's now, in fact, becoming a driving force. Now, it's ill-conceived. It's a sort of bastardized form, but it means that they recognize material is not all there is to it. Which you know maybe um, can be a, another opening for Christians to to reassert some of these arguments to them, but um, you know I'm fairly pessimistic on some of that. But I think all of that is the the cultural conditions that that uh, used to be taken for granted. We're now seeing you know how how disastrous that was to not uh, maintain or, or insert kind of mechanisms of maintenance um, on on those things. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think one of the things we we sp- We've seen erode uh, in the West, of course, is the rich and robust understanding of the doctrine of creation and its teleological character, its orientation towards certain ends, and of course, that coupled with the the formative dimensions of creation, that it unfolds Mm -hmm. in accord with the way things are created and intended to be, and divine providence Mm -hmm. governs that, and those things established by providence are part of the formative dimension That brings Mm -hmm. this about. And so, for example, 17th century, you had an erosion of final causes happen through the philosophical, Mm -hmm. basically secular philosophy. Mm -hmm. So Edwards would have been up against this. He would have been confronting this probably head on and noticing what it could look like should... Yeah. This Christian assumption about reality erode. Um, but then it basically, you know it was taken for granted in Christendom, if you will, the divine providence, even of bad political communities, served a mm-hmm. purpose in terms of final causes of a certain kind of earthly perfecting of the created order. Mm -hmm. This is gone by the time 17th, 18th, 19th century. So a lot of the way in which the church basically nestles into those philosophical shifts, often without even realizing it, becomes the taken-for-granted assumption. And so, therefore, Mm -hmm. Christians think that these kinds of, you know, the focus on political community is basically... um, supporting this notion that individuals have their own purposes and ends, and the state is here to basically make sure that everyone can achieve that in a protected, safe way. That isn't anything like the classic Christian vision. So my point is, is that Christians have so absorbed so many of the assumptions that you're exactly right, without the kind of rich resourcement work, And the Mm -hmm. deep commitment, not simply to, because I do agree with Rich Muller in in getting a hold of those uh, classic sources, but they have to be read in light of also classic theological doctrine that took Mm -hmm. a long time Mm -hmm. to carve out. And even if the Reformation gives it, I think, a full and right twist, um, I think some people have even read the Reformation through a doctrine of creation that is less than fully Christian Mm -hmm. and ended up with some of these tendencies.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you, Tom. One of the things that disturbs me is sometimes people uh, approach uh, uh, divine law strictly in a positive law sense and that Mm -hmm. there's almost a kind of de facto ideology uh, that it develops that is uh, remarkably similar to the approach that Marxist or fascist would take, that we um, are imposing form on the formless as opposed to – recognizing uh given uh uh, things and their forms and working with them and anyway but that's a whole other argument but
3: (laughs) (laughs) no i think i think that's but i think it matters i mean you see um you see what you could call you know sort of a unifying pathology across certain domains for evangelicals in this sense and um it's no one as, as tom was saying you know taking our uh, not realizing how much the culture you're not attending to is actually forming you as you don't, you know, subtly like the, the frog in, you know, boiling water. Um, it's no coincidence in my mind, I don't know it's, if it's causal, but it's not coincidental that at the very same time the court, the, the you know, Holmes Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes co- Court, is castigating the natural order and natural law and the brooding omnipresence in the sky and so on and so forth. You have Protestants. Um, you know, joining BART and rejecting natural law and natural theology wholesale. That's all happening within the same basic time frame. Um, You know, massive departure from american protestant and, uh, traditions and then of course the extension you know to to our english continental roots of course but that that it's all being eroded at the same time for um with the you know the emergence of a of more scientific approach to all these disciplines right uh, which which is intentionally cutting you off from any any kind of classic antiquity or, or traditions there um so that you know that's all happening and at the same time you see this this same kind of pathology like i was saying influencing hermeneutics and your approach to biblical theology, you know, as it stood at the time. Um, and it's and then, you know, once once the culture starts encroaching too fast upon you, making you uncomfortable, then conservatives generally want to figure out how to respond. So you come up with basically firefighting fire. You come up with a positive positivist, aka originalist conservative jurisprudence this supposed to mm-hmm. stop it. But it's it's so textually limited with no background metaphysics or anthropology or anything that's supposed to inform law, that it, it, it has proven itself to be completely feeble and inept uh, as demonstrated by the Bostock case. I think that's the, the sort of, every, everyone agreed. This movement as, as, it, as was understood in jurisprudence has just, you know, met its end. If it can't stop um, a an act as recent as the 1960s from importing hmm. and and, and you know anachronistically imposing a certain definition of human beings onto the language the people you know writing it never would have understood then this is just completely bunk and it can't save us and that was a positivist movement to basically you know um, i have no doubt that uh, Antonin Scalia himself believed in a concept of natural law how well formed i'm not sure but he you know had this these arbitrary limits on the judge's role and his ability to You know, understand the things you're judging about, which is people, and we do this in legislation and everything else. And it, I think, it's connected to um, the complete secularization of the, uh, you know, governing offices of magistrates. They have no concern for the complete human being, uh, only as material
2: conditions. Right. You know, another direction on this, um, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I'll pull it back in. I was having a rather long-running discussion on Facebook with a woman in India. And she was arguing simultaneously that Christianity is okay in India, but conversion to Christianity is bad. (laughs) And her argument was that being a Hindu. Hindu is an artificial term. It's a term actually created by the British to describe a whole conglomeration of Indian religions. There's no such thing as a Hindu religion, you know, to an Indian. There are specific uh, religions, but Hinduism is uh, doesn't really work. She said that being Indian is being Hindu. That that that's all that there is to it, and so these conversion things, which he always said were malicious and so on, um, just you know can't happen. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is that there are scholars of religion who argue that the very concept of religion, as we think of it, is a product of Christianity. Mm-hmm. That in virtually all other cultures, religion and society are. Religion and culture, religion and society, whatever you want to say are so tightly integrated that you can't really separate religion out mm-hmm. the way we tend to do it and I would argue that this goes back to a de facto separation of church and state that becomes evident when Constantine legalizes Christianity Christianity's functioned as a an illegal religion for three hundred years um that shows that it's separate from the state. Mm -hmm. That process gets accelerated um, post-Reformation, actually, into the idea of a a completely secular state, something that is completely separate from any kind of religious underpinning. I mean, even if you look at Martin Luther uh, with his Two Kingdoms theology, which is very different from the R2K stuff we get now, uh, he said I was that God has say two kingdoms didn't. in this world. Pardon me? <laughs> I was going to say it if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, he sa- "He says God has two kingdoms in this world. The right-hand kingdom is the church. The left-hand kingdom is the state. Both of them are here to promote God's, uh, God's will, God's purposes, righteousness, goodness, holiness, truth. They just do it by different means, and they have different types of jurisdiction." I mean, you know, Calvin, similarly, government is based on covenant. Um, All of these things. After that, starting with the sort of pre-Enlightenment, maybe early Enlightenment guys, uh, where you start getting a radical secularization coming in, uh, where government is seen as being completely separate in principle from religion, and then that accelerates further, the evangelicals with the kind of individual, volu- individualistic, voluntaristic approach to the faith, I think all of those those dynamics uh, are what lead you to the situation where Christians don't really have a clue too often uh, on what to do with government, or even whether or not they ought to participate.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's uh, interesting, Glenn. Um, I one of my teachers during my my de- <laughs> My post-grad years was Nicholas Lash, who was retired. Well, he was retiring at the term I had him. He uh, was the Norris House professor at Cambridge University. He wrote a beautiful book called The Beginning and End of Religion. And he actually grew up in India. His his uh, father was in the military there, and he ends up converting to Catholicism. But he ends up recognizing that the whole notion of religion used in the West has no continuity, even with the way in which Christianity used the term religion up until about the 17th century. So those whole polarities, he starts to basically d- pull out a, a history and where these things start to take shape. The, our whole notion of religion, as basically this quartered off arena, if you will, in which can be severable from our political commitments and the like, is is really a, a byproduct of those shifts in philosophies and ideas that don't owe allegiance to. If you notice that, you can easily see it with early Reformation. What do you get? True and false religion. You don't get the ah-religious uh, sphere. There is no secular. Secular is a, is a space of time. It isn't a, a cornered off, um, you know, it, it's time. It's not space, right? There is no space that is, it doesn't have to do with the dispositions of our heart and the orientations of our loves. And so you, you don't have a, a separation of church and state. It do, doesn't even make sense
0: yeah so time and, you know, so here's the situation we find ourselves and we've we're, we're at a, a place uh, in time where you know there's a paucity of really good contemporary work we're trying to uh, bring back you know some awareness to, uh, about what you know our uh, you know forefathers in the faith uh, you know you know, pr- you know passed on to us um, in terms of uh, you know your work, I think you know we we know you're you're all about trying to get us talking about this stuff, but if if we were to think about say um, a world in which uh, the situation has changed and, and we're moving forward in a in a way that that you'd like to see us move forward, what does that look like? Do you have, a, have some thoughts about? you know, what, what do churches do? What do pastors do? What do, you know, institutions do that kind of stuff? I know that's a very broad question. Yeah, Take it yeah. in wherever you want.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, the many people will say this, including, um, you know, Aquinas says it, I mean, Montesquieu says it, whatever the, your laws, um, and, and I would include in that your, your government, your polity, your structure do need to be respectful of the condition of the people include, which includes their history. So these kinds of proposals for, uh, America that you see out of certain circles that, um, are completely foreign on, on all those fronts, you know, are not, are not feasible nor wise. Um, but I think the, what you can work with is, you know, what has been native to the country until, you know, not all that long ago, historically speaking. Um, one of those, those, you know, one of our, uh, real experiments, I hate talking about America as an experiment because it's, I like living in countries, not labs. Um, but, but one thing we really did, you know, try to work on is the, um, Uh, through our federalist structure, to have a certain kind of religious diversity, meaning Protestant diversity, basically, um, that would be regionally or, you know, in terms of states uh, carved up, uh, essentially. You know, we can live this way, but we're going to, at at a certain jurisdictional level, leave this to, um, you know, soft or stronger establishments, as the case may be. So I think we do have in our, um, and and federalism is, again, becoming very, very important for um, Not necessarily religious, although I would say it's connected to that, but many political reasons now. I mean, you already see self-sorting and a sort of pre-Balkanization and regionalization um, already. So all of a sudden, federalism, especially post-Dobbs and now with immigration and uh, I would say, broadly speaking, family and sexual issues, federalism is looking much more attractive to people, again, where you might be able to and might indeed have to – create a way of life that's very different from your neighbors. And and that's okay. We have something that might be able to handle that. So I think that has to be included as, um, but, you know, the main thing I always like to emphasize, especially is the, the background kind of history and conditioning of, um, you know, what we call our founding, which, you know, stretches, um, a couple hundred years prior to that. And to really understand, you know, there's a big difference, um, from the, the university student today reading John Locke than if you're a 17th century Protestant reading John Locke, very different perspective and assumptions, um, and even um, discretion and discrimination. I mean, 18th century Protestants are able to handle a little bit of Thomas Paine, um, and then they discard the rest of him, right, for, for various reasons. So trying to understand what we have um, through through a truly historical perspective that tries to understand you know what what was actually created for us and and to the extent possible recover those elements that are that are good and that are um, you know that that are kind of still available to us um, but there's I have no kind of fantasies about a full uh, caricatured kind of return to anything. We have to, we have to move forward and we have to be prudent with, um, a lot of it may be our fault, but this is where we're at now. So now what, what do you do? Um, so I think, you know, beyond just the intellectual sphere, which I've been talking about, I want to see people doing that. I want our discussions to be better and more historically informed and faithful to our own, uh, tradition. Um, and you know, to some extent, extent pastors can uh, can do that in their teaching. Although I, I'm not one that wants to see political sermons every week, I think there's a place for that uh, in our tradition. But not, you know, I it is very good for one in seven days to uh, to think of higher things uh, for once. So I don't I don't want that. And that, a lot of people think that's what you're talking about is this sort of um, mass political politicization of the church. I also am not a real subscriber, though, to the, to the separation doc, doctrine either, as some of my, my friends would be. I think there's problems there as well, um, because our thought needs to be of an integrated and holistic vision of society, which includes all of its elements and not a carved up one. Um, I think it's, it's interesting, again, this is not a causal claim, that um, as we've carved up society increasingly, we've started to carve up the human person. Also, so the bodies are corresponding in that way, um and we it's also know absor- yeah. yeah, it's a fascinating
0: yeah. observation there at the time yeah. because of the, in antiquity the the correlation between the human Indeed. body and the body politic was is yeah. pretty tight. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Exactly. I think they, these things just uh, th- th- there is there's more going on behind the scenes in the world as we as Christians know than, than meets the eye, and I think these things uh, happen. Um, uh, in a corresponding way, to some extent, your you're, uh, the national or you know uh, political spirit uh, we might say is going to be reflected in, a, in the body of the people, whatever's going on. Um, so all that to say, I would like us to think in more holistic terms, including um, you know what the human person is. A lot of this is very very bad or poor, or sloppy anthropology that that Christians yeah. run around with, and it was just very conventional for reformed people to. S- to think of, you know, if a if a governor is a king, a magistrate is over people, it's the whole person. That includes their soul unless, you know, Richard Hooker would say you're you're governing hogs, then it's the whole person you have to consider. Now, this yeah. does not mean that you have juridical competency to do everything for them, mm-hmm. but it does mean that you should certainly as someone of power support those organs in society that do more directly have that concern, which which is why you would then say the magistrate is to be a nursing father and mother of the church, right? It's to, it's to promote them to be able to take care of the person in this way. Um, so I think uh, all that to say, we need to think better about it, but churches should also, in a sense, be more assertive in this way because they are, a, a, and I'm thinking you know, socially and politically most often, um, I don't care as much about conversions when I'm thinking about this stuff, it's not interesting to me whether there is revival. I'm, I know exactly where I would have been in the 18th century, which is the curmudgeon old side. And then like <laughs> this, is, this is nuts. Um, yeah. I'm just not I – don't, I don't depend on these, on these things. But um, when we're just talking about social public morality, um, you do need the influence of the church. It's prophetic witness there um to all people and it should be privileged in a certain regard by the by the authorities and you should be telling you know preaching morality to the the public um even as on Sundays of course you're still preaching salvation and all these things as well but it needs to see itself as a public organ or a public presence rather than this retreatist kind of pilgrim sojourner thing that's just bandied about to, to really beat evangelicals over the head until they're just completely neutered and have no, no real influence in society at all. But we need to see this as part of the, the job of the church. And in turn, we need to demand that our governing authorities uh, treat us as such and respect us in this way, because a, um, a real and true commonwealth deserving of the name has to be oriented towards God. Otherwise, it is a corpse. So
0: here, here's a thought. So you're at the Hale Institute. So this, this is an, yeah. an institution that is affiliated, of course, with New St. Andrews, but it has kind of, a, an agenda and it's, and, a mm-hmm. you know, a purpose of its own distinct from New St. Andrews. There's obviously an affinity there. Um, yes. I think about the fact that most of our colleges and the consortium of Christian colleges and universities, mm-hmm. I think that's the t- title of it these days. Um, uh, don't seem to have much of an interest in doing what you're describing. In fact, if, yes. if there's an institution of a higher education out there that, you know, apart from say New Saint Andrews, that comes to mind when it when this subject comes up, it's Hillsdale. I mm-hmm. mean, and Hillsdale is not a part of that organization at all. In fact, mm-hmm. <laughs> for a while, people wouldn't have even called it a Christian school, although under Arn, mm-hmm. I think it's becoming more and more explicitly so. Mm-hmm. But in a we- in an interesting way, in the sense that it's, uh, I think that they see the Christian, I think they see Christendom as absolutely essential to the health of Western Mm. civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can't separate the two. And so they've kind of back come in the back door, you could say it's not because, you know, they were set mm -hmm. up by Billy Graham or something or or whoever, you know, who was the founding father of the institution, but it's, it's kind of that approach. Do you have any thoughts on institutions, uh, and their role, you know, somewhat distinct from, but connected to Mm -hmm. the
3: church? Yeah so the you know colleges are obviously um, especially there's something about America where we we've used colleges in many ways to and I, and I wrote something on this recently but the, I'm going to assume no one's read it because that's usually the case um uh, so this won't be <laughs> redundant but the um, you know because uh, there's much debate over this of course right in America the extent to which there is a class system or an aristocracy right Tocqueville talks about this in fact he says lawyers fill that role which I'm okay with um, because they have a sort of shared uh, language and an ability to, um, you know, to, to do certain things that no one else can at the at the time. Um, so that that's one theory. But the, the the probably the more viable one too is that we have used universities and schools to filter um, these things and, and designate. Uh, the people who belong to certain classes. Now, this has been somewhat muddied because uh, with the massive expansion—whatever you want to say, if it's post GI Bill—I don't, I don't know—but massive expansion of available institutions. Um, but this is what we use schooling for, and that's why we're obsessed with education, especially middle-class people, the ones that want to keep moving. So it's a very—it's a central aspect of our society, not just because we care about education itself, but because it as a social function. And I think it's important for Christian institutions in particular to recognize this and to start acting accordingly, which, of course, includes pursuing excellence and the truth and, you know, whatever you want to call it, great books, this type of stuff. These these aspects of civilization, you know, you got to be like Denzel Washington in Book of Eli or whatever, like you're trying mm-hmm. to protect them, assuming, every, you know, everything turns to ash and you're eating mm-hmm. the, like, uh, hairless cats or whatever he's hunting. Anyway, the, um, but at the same time you need to, you know, while everything still stands and we do have many opportunities available to us still, I think, um, if we are serious about our society, um, we have to recognize there's, it's necessary to produce elites that are not only of the the character we desire, but also serve our interests. And I'm not saying that in a purely cynical way. I'm just saying that's how it works. And so we need to start thinking of our educational institute. And my point is, I think to some extent, Hillsdale has a bit of that mentality. It knows what it's trying to produce, and it is assertive, and it is outward facing. Um, this is how the elite schools that now hate us act. They set the terms of the, of the of debate and of the game. They control the lexicon, and they use those things to maintain their, their status, right, and um, the problem is we don't have, uh, we can't be quite as ruthless or dishonest as those people, but we can take a bit from their their playbook and say, really, our educational institutions are about conveying status to the people we want to be in charge, and this is how we've done it in America, and we need to get back, you know, kind of on the ball with thinking that way. It's a long-term so, project, but I think that's what schools often do.
0: So, what do we do with, with the insecurity of our institutions? I mean, I think that yes. that, that, that if I if I think about say, your typical school in the, you know, the Christian world, you know, let's just pick on some names like Wheaton or Gordon or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't think uh, self-confident. I don't think assertive. Mm -hmm. I think adaptive and insecure Mm -hmm. and always looking over their shoulder to make sure that uh, everybody likes them, including people who hate them.
2: Glenn, go ahead. Uh, On a different level, I think we may be seeing the breakdown of that entire system mm-hmm. because of all the stuff going on at Harvard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, I mean, there's been it hasn't they haven't gotten as much publicity, but there's been one serious plagiarism scandal after another, starting with the president and working its way down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's may have the long term effect of really tarnishing the reputation of these elite institutions the question then is what replaces them yeah. because yeah, it's, kind, it's
1: society, kind of like the, is, yes, the, the killing have each have
2: something to establish that kind of uh, you know elite it's just it's it's just a fact of life yeah so the, the, if it isn't going to be harvard who is it yeah the midianites
0: are killing each other uh, and that's yeah. that's entertaining but uh, yes. you're right We and you should know, let them some, do some it point, <laughs> that's right we should let them do it but at some point you're right how do we how do we care less about what uh, U.S. news and world reports does in mm-hmm. terms of our ranking.
3: Well, this, and, yeah, uh, exactly what I was going to say that part of this, I mean, we, we hope that, um, you know, these institutions that are not, you know, worth a dime do destroy themselves. I mean, the best thing is to let them, but, You know, I'm not as now Glenn's beard is grayer and longer. So he's wider <laughs> than me, but I am not as optimistic about, um, Harvard in this way. I'm not, I'm not actually sure what will, what will happen. Um, What could happen to to destroy it, essentially, which by which I mean, you know, uh, let's keep the buildings. I like a lot of those. But, you know, it's it's cachet is gone because you see this. I mean, this, again, is something what I'm talking about, how the left operates and we don't. Uh, Claudine is her first name. Gay. Right plagiarism scandal, what happens to her? She keeps her salary, $900,000 a year. And now she just gets to teach. I mean, this is like a dream gig. Now she has no responsibility whatsoever. Basically as tenured, they don't, kick her to the curb and someone just like her replaces her. Right. So they don't, they, the left does not worry about this stuff. They take care of their people. You know, sometimes you're exiled performatively for a little bit and then you, then you, you know, read the back pages of the newspaper and you're like, Oh, they're back. You know, who, no one, you know, so, so the point is they take care of their own people and they're, they don't take um, they, they take their real work seriously. They don't take um, the actual, Um, outrage or violations of of some kind of norms that they commit all the time, uh, seriously at all. Anyway, this happens at scale, you know, across all institutions. But focusing on the school aspect, so we need to think in a sort of more protectionist sense, I would say. But to go, go into what Chris was talking about too, how do you how do you displace these people? Let's say they're not going to destroy themselves, but they can be displaced. You have to completely buck and disregard the, the pre-existing status hierarchy, and you have to say, I don't care about U.S. news. Um, these are, you know, and this starts with parents and this starts with employers that are Christians and you have to say, I don't care about any of that. What I care about is the quality in the way I think of quality education as a Christian, as a proponent of Western civilization in America, um, and I think we, these are these are all different metrics. I think of the you know the the purveyance of the faith of oh, all these things, but also I think of institutions that are going to produce the leadership that we need, not just to get the bottom dollar, you know this this sort of just how much money 250k with a white picket fence, whatever. Not just that, but like real elites and leadership in the sense that we want them, and that's what you pursue. And it, you can never pursue that so long as you're beholden to the the pre-existing arrangement All
2: right yeah All right. I, I should note that I'm speculating about Harvard I'm thinking <laughs> mostly in terms of their reputation though mm-hmm. uh, within the general public I I have a feeling that the stories yeah. are going to get buried and they're going to forget but one can always hope
3: I hope that is I, the case the one the the other aspect that that gives me pause on that is you know if there if there's one predominant, ethic right now it's you know the worst thing you can be in america is a racist right absolute worst thing there's nothing worse harvard is demonstrably racist for a long time like this is not even new i mean this is basically the entire 20th century extended to today and nothing happens to them no one cares everyone would still send their kid to harvard because it is a gateway into the class they want to be in and so it doesn't matter what's going on there. So my point is, my only point, Glenn, is not that they're not doing terrible things worthy of, that are disgraceful and worthy of our, uh, of losing their status, but just that it's such a stranglehold and it suits, you know, the interest of those people that it's really not about the education, the quality or whatever. It's about getting to, you know, Davos one day or something, you know, whatever they want to do. Um, And that, that, That pipeline is so secure still. It's not that we don't all hate those people in the pipeline and they hate us, but it's hard to figure out how do you – and so my only alternative that I can think of is we just have have to play the same game in our own way. And just ignore them in some sense. Don't try to be Harvard, the evangelical Harvard. You know, what a cop-out. What mimicking, you know, the people. that the evangelical, That's You're doomed to fail from the beginning. You say, we're going to do, you know, our thing. We're going to be be better. Um, at least so, that's the theory. Brandeis we're all, we're all University.
2: <laughs> Brandeis University was founded in the late 1940s by the secular Jewish community who were fed up with quotas <laughs> for Jews at Harvard. Yeah. Um, their curriculum was designed by Albert Einstein.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, you know, we can kind of go on and on. I mean, it. it but they end up being a school ideologically very much like yeah. what you see at yeah. Harvard. Yeah, yes. you can't tell much difference. Right? Well,
3: but, and that's that's yeah. the. I mean, they they did it because Jews were being discriminated against. You know, quota system, whatever. But they wanted to be there, right? So they right. said, "Well, we'll do the thing." The Catholics do the same thing. Notre Dame is, you know, their Ivy League because they couldn't get into the other ones. And so there is a sense in which we're doing that, but there's they were still in a roundabout way playing the game to get into the the status hierarchy as it goes all the way to the top. What we're saying is we're going to have to in some senses, start start from scratch, but uh, revive a, a mentality for for leadership and control over the country that we it is still statistically even ours, even at this late date, which is pretty encouraging. That people are still I mean, I can't I actually can't believe it. Historically, it's ours. It's a Protestant country. Uh, leadership was abdicated by the main line in the 60s. You know, finally, I mean, it was it was rotting for a long time. And um, so we need to take ownership is, is I guess, the best way I'd, I'd put it over over these things. That's my kind of vision for what we can do at, at various institutional levels that we do still have, you know, say over and uh, and try to use them in that way.
2: So yeah. let, let's look at the, evang- the evolution of the evangelical world. Mm-hmm. The evangelicals started off... Having, um, I think it was four characteristics that, that have been identified. Conversionist, obviously. Mm-hmm. Bibliocentric, obviously. Crucicentric, mm-hmm. obviously. Social action. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, the early evangelicals were known for that. They believed that mm-hmm. that you had to put your faith into practice in public life. Somehow, I think probably because of the Second Great Awakening, well, no, even in the Second Great Awakening, you had a strong social action thing. Somewhere along the way, the conversionism side of things took over and the social action dropped out. Mm -hmm. Well, I would modify that. that Once that happened, you get this idea that the faith is about what you do at church. It's not what you do in politics. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I would modify that a little bit uh, Glenn, uh, Timothy Smith, the author of revivalism and social reform, uh, obviously kind of the Wesleyan holiness, uh, the tradition he taught it, uh, Oh, what's the school? Uh, John Johns Hopkins. But anyways, uh, it was all liberationist in character. In other words, the kind of social action we're talking about, uh, didn't, uh, see itself as, uh, you know, sort of, uh, giving a sort of, uh, or tr- trying to reinforce, uh, you know, given ends or, 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 mm-hmm. uh, trying to, uh, direct say, um, you know, various institutions to the glory of God, like law or whatever, it was more or less, well, it was the, you know, it was, um, the temperance movement. Mm. It, it was the
2: temperance w- movement it was the women. abolitionist movement it's the uh, movement women. against prostitution it's a but, whole but host also of like also that.
0: very very much uh, you know uh,
2: the uh, women's
0: movement uh, mm-hmm. kind of the early yep. phases of that so many of the many of the institutions many of the denominations that were associated with that social you know sort of sort of social yeah, revivalism and social reform uh, became a, egalitarian mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in their understanding of the re- relationship between men and women.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, another well, yeah, aspect where you, of the. Uh, oh, sorry, Tom, go ahead. I was
0: going to
1: say that, that's where you're starting to really see the, the results of a gutted doctrine of creation, created order, ends, purposes, teleology, mm-hmm. moving towards just eschatology, really at, uh, towards a kind of almost a Gnostic vision of eschatology.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and another aspect of the of, of the way you know, evangelicalism as we're talking about it, even, even, um, coinciding with the neo-evangelicalism, you know, whether it's a new thing or not, I'm not, I'm not sure, but that was, a, that was another adjustment, you know, phase to try to make it more palatable to make sure. but the, you know, there was, there was, there's always been the recognition of course, and it's still the case today. And this is still why certain people act a certain way that, uh, you know, evangelicals are, are a very significant and important voting block, right? They, they do things. And so you saw during, you know, even in the early er, years of the Cold War, um, massive corporate interest and uh, exertion into steering evangelicals towards, uh, you know, certainly against communism, but it just so happened it it was always in this sort of overreactive individualist and, and, you know, radically libertarian vein that they pushed evangelicals towards. And that, that was concerted effort, tons of money to do that. And you saw it continue all the way through. Uh, I guess up to today through the Koch brothers and everyone else, right? They target these groups and it's to be Christian is to be, you know, against the atheism and the communism, which means, and now, you know, Marxism, neo-Marxism, whatever, which means to be the polar opposite in a radical sense, you know, purely individual. And then of course, in capitalism, capitalism is Christian. I mean, they had those slogans coming out of whatever the first congregational church in Los Angeles was. I mean, those, that mission uh, you know, group and and this whatever their publications were I can't anyway point is all that was a concerted effort to make evangelicals think a certain way and that's still you know the legacy is still there and a lot of that Underneath it, most of those people were were theologically liberal, actually, yeah. in terms of their biblical fidelity and, and rootedness in a, any kind of tradition, even as they were libertarian publicly. Actually, that all makes sense to me, but it seems like a contradiction to many authors. Um, but it suited corporate and financial interests, and, and it, it was very effective, and it still works that way. So I think evangelicals need to also see themselves as... Uh, developing defenses to, against being used, uh, because they are still significant, but all, but all that stuff swirling around, I mean, it's so hard to put the genie back in the bottle or rather, you know, exercise some of these demons in the evangelical brains, you know, so.
1: It, it's very interesting what you just, you said in terms of, because uh, I, I, I think that's one of the big issues and problems is this relatedness and adoption of a kind of, modernist notion of libertarian will and self that yes. has been embraced by evangelicals that is no different than the general culture's conception yes. of it. It just happens that maybe have a Christian gloss on it in some way, right. and the corporate manipulation and direction of it. It's interesting. I was reading a 2004 article by Paul Griffiths, the Catholic thinker who wrote uh, yes. Intellect and uh, what would it, Appetite, um, and he was looking at the way that some of the classic kind of 60s radical like um, Terry Eagleton, the famous critical theorist in, in um, Marxist, mm-hmm. and then looking at more contemporary kind of neo-Marxist like Zizek, how they were disturbed that the critical theoretical agenda had been hijacked by the corporate world in the U.S. and basically had become a consumerist, radical, libertarian um, mm-hmm. vision, that they were turning to classic Christian doctrinal sources to have a better kind of moral Marxism. It, it's stunning. <laughs>
0: that's good. So wild. what you're talking about is sort of like the Ben and Jerry effect on politics. You know, in other <laughs> words, you know, Here you got a bunch of crunchies uh, who are millionaires and, and millionaire commies or whatever. That's yeah.
3: right. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, look, there, there's much about that's ingrained in the American way of life that is different than than any European country would ever be. Um, yeah. But but so much of that is not actually, um, at least in its original form, the way people conceive of it now. And you and, and a lot of this has been really poor, the, uh, not just theological, but historical education. Again, uh, concerted efforts to sort of catechize people in a certain way. And and what you come down to, I mean, these same people. Koch brothers, whatever, they may, they may claim that they're against open borders, unchecked immigration, whatever. But what you've done is turned everyone into an economic unit who lives in an economic zone. So now what are, you know, how do you do border security with a people that conceives of themselves as these sort of economic uh, mechanisms running around, um, you know, availing themselves of every choice? This is just unworkable. So these things, um, I can't convince yeah, everybody. As to, this but they do matter. You know how you think yeah, about yourself.
0: Yeah, as opposed to a human being and a citizen, and, exactly. and you know that kind. With so
3: with an eternal destiny, right? And right. And so
0: yeah. yeah. So let me let me throw something out to you here because I'm in a very odd situation. I'm here in the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> uh, and uh, a
2: really, uh,
0: the dominant. Uh, Christian presence here is evangelical. Mm-hmm. We have no, uh, you know, mainline presence to speak of in Battleground. A couple mm-hmm. of little, you know, uh, we got a little Methodist church, a little Lutheran church. They're compl- they're dwarfed by the mm-hmm. thousand member, you know, Russian Baptist church, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and uh, we've got almost no Roman Catholic presence no mm-hmm. almost no orthodox president even in spite of the fact that we've got this very large slavic population there's almost no uh, mm-hmm. orthodox presence they're, they're all evangelicals um and uh, we've got two groups: uh, the Apostolic Lutherans, which are Laplanders. They're not, you know, they're they're, you know, even in Scandinavia, they're considered a kind of weird. <laughs> but but in terms of their presence here, they're very strong. They've got thirty forty thousand in the area, and very, uh, you know, Christian in terms of their moral. Uh, family life, conduct, and that kind of thing, and then we got the Russians and the Ukrainians, who are all Baptists and Pentecostals, but they're used to wow. you know being sent off to the gulags, you know. So they're so mm. both groups, because one's Pietistic and the other has got a history of actually you know some significant persecution, are shy about getting involved mm. in that. But then there are even the, the sort of the more mainstream evangelical big Eva types. We've got a number of that, number of those churches, like I said, you know, of about a thousand members or more, uh, yeah. and yet. Uh, you know, we don't have, say, a public presence. Now, we've got an ethos. Battleground has a very, I think, Christian ethos. Um, and everybody in the area knows, you know, you don't do the the, the gay rights thing over there. Nobody shows sure. up, that kind of thing. Nevertheless, sure. uh, everybody's a little bit reticent. And I think that maybe one of the roles that our particular church can play is uh, a public role Kind of speaking for these folks, um, have you had any kind of time to reflect on, you know, sort of more, maybe more broadly, you know, hmm. uh, how uh, those of us who are thinking about these things can maybe be really kind of the the patricians who are serving the larger evangelical world, who maybe because of their theological heritage or whatever, are, are reticent to get involved.
3: Hmm. That's very, I mean, that is, it. You, you're right, it's a very odd scenario you have up there. That I'm not sure I've ever heard that <laughs> make up in one location. Um, yes, that, w- what is good, though, is you have no threat of uh, evangelicals who get really into, uh, uh, you know, the church fathers or something, swimming the Tiber, or becoming Eastern Orthodox, which is like every <laughs> what everybody does now, as uh, so they're not around. But um, yes, the, so, so the idea that those those churches or maybe even individuals that um, are ready, willing, and able to speak on behalf of of the, we could say the Protestant or Christian interest in the country can and should. Um, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, I would I would endorse that wholeheartedly. Um, you know, I I tend to. Um, you know, in my in my uh, political nirvana, there would there's going to be you know there would be more of an establishment feel. I like order and and chain of command and and uh, you know synods and things like this. But in, in the interim, where we where we don't have as much of that at, at a political level, where it actually matters in this sense, I think it's it's incumbent on, on people to uh, to perform that role as best they can, um, especially if if people are willing for you to do it and will we'll back you, you know, doing it, even if they can't themselves as a sort of spokesman for communities, you know, that form together. And I think that the general uh, attitude in America itself is especially pan-Protestant. You know, we've uh, pretty broadly conceived, actually, but the idea that Baptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists are you know, basically accepting of one another and can kind of operate well together, especially as political blocks. I think that's a, a good thing that should be recovered as much as possible for these purposes.
0: Well, we're getting near the point where we're going to wrap things up. And I know there are lots of things probably s- swirling in Glenn and Tom's minds. <laughs> uh, so let's go to you guys. Uh, Glenn, do you have anything you want to like uh, say, state or, or ask at this point?
2: there are you know i'm i'm just sort of ticking through my stuff on um you know from Slang leviathan and from all of these uh other directions and i'm afraid any of them would take us way too far <laughs> afield and take way too long to go through so i'll pass <laughs> okay okay tom how about you
1: um i mean i think you know it, it I think paralleling all the work that you're you're doing is what we are doing and trying to do both with the podcast in its own way, but also the work we do. I mean, I similarly are trying a lot of the retrieval work of some of the rich things in ethics, Mm -hmm. virtue, formation, um, classic Christian understandings of these things, which are so rich and are so immense that when I present them, even at seminary, students have no clue Mm what to do with it evangelical students who've grown in the church been to seminary two or three years they don't realize that this is even christian and and i and i and this is with evangelicals and and protestants at large and uh and so i think it's it we have i mean a lot of the commit value commitments they have have been so shaped by the surrounding culture mm-hmm. and it's loves that bringing Christian richness back in is a huge task. And so I guess the question is, uh, you know, I think from what I'm hearing is just just start where you are and, and, and get rolling with it. Not so much. I mean, it's from there that we actually get things out. Did I, Did I hear that right?
3: Yeah, I would, um, there, There's a lot there that uh, we, we could. Uh, you basically just Glenn did what Glenn said he wouldn't do. Um, there's, you know, we can but um, I read his point. <laughs> no, this, this is great. I'll just I'll try to keep it brief. My my thoughts in return. I, that is is what I'm saying. Start. You know, people need to start where they are. I, I was you know railing in a certain sense against the capitalist in kind of the way Marx would refer to them. At the same time, Americans have always been industrious people um that's part of our our culture and ethos and history i think that's venerable and i think we should do it again and we've been especially uh, this is up through you know the kind of the gilded age for for better or worse socially industrious i mean that's where you get all these societies doing things you know maybe it was a little disjointed and could have been better organized but i mean the the amount of activity and uh, money dedicated to these things time all that this is a very american thing and so i think w- we've lost some of that drive most of our big institutions that get all the money and time and resources in evangelicalism are, are a waste of time. They're not doing anything that they should other than assuring the, uh, you know, kind of th- the elites as they stand or the regime or whatever you want to call it, that we're OK. You know, don't you know, we're acting like, um, you know, we're, we're in this embattled first century position, which is what they want you to think. It's not the first century. Don't act like it's the first century, Um So I I think starting where you are is is excellent advice and people should become um, active again and, you know, sort of spend themselves on these things because God's charged us with it in this providence. Um, Last thing I'll say is just on the resourcement. I mean, I am big on the education side because, you know, maybe some people think it's, it's cliche and uh, they want to get going on some things, which I do. I do too, but I don't think we can underestimate how a, uh, how detrimental a lack of true education has been. And I'm meeting in the tradition for, um, you know, happens, takes a long time to build up that sort of stockpile of learning and like no time to lose it. Um, When I went to Westminster, we were the last class that used Machen's Greek textbook because no one has too much Latin in it and no one coming to school now knows Latin even in grad school and Machen could not have conceived of the fact that if you're studying Koine Greek, you don't know Latin already, you know? So even that you're just like, you know, we're lesser mortals. Uh, I I'm uh, somewhat sentimental about uh, the 18th century generations. I think they were incredibly socially and educationally virtuous people. And they were intentional about that. You can see that from the reading levels, all this stuff, Um, you know, Roman and Greek antiquity was not window dressing to them, and neither was Scripture. I mean, this, they lived in these yeah. worlds. If you read John Adams, that's obvious, right? So, um, any, anyone else. So my point is, like, we, we're just not quite actually prepared to take on the task that those people yeah. could have. It's not presented itself yet to us, but as we work towards hopefully having opportunities like that for the good of our of our country, we got to we got to prepare ourselves along the way, and that's that's a tall order.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation time. Now, uh, of course, everyone uh, in podcast land needs to look up American Reformer and uh, follow it. Uh, But uh, is there anything else that you want us to to make certain that people know about and, and avail themselves of?
3: No, Amer- yeah. Follow American Reformer. Um, that's where most, I mean, I, I write it world somewhat frequently now, American mind is as well sometimes, but most of it's at American Reformer and mainly so you can read all the other great people that write for us. We really do have a, a building a pretty good roster of, of people. Um, you know, it's broadly Protestant. So you also have, you know, we've, we've published charismatic LCMS, you know, all kinds of people to try to really, uh, recover that sensibility of a general Protestantism in America, but it also shows you parallel issues across denominations that are happening. Everyone is kind of in the same boat. Um, yeah. And so it's good to, to read those. So I, I just encourage everybody to read all the, the you know those people that write for us. It's, there's always good stuff. I'm, I'm always impressed yeah. by what we receive, including even th- sometimes C.R. Wiley.
0: It's <laughs> 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 I haven't besmirched the publication yet. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this is great. Thanks a lot, Tim. And thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. You've gotten all the way to the end of an episode. And uh, as your reward, you get to hear about Patreon. <laughs> we we uh, really do depend on people uh, who uh, on a monthly basis support us. And we're really grateful for those folks. And if you'd like to become one of them, uh, you can follow the link in the show notes to the Patreon page and uh, do that. The other thing is, is we're getting ready for our trip to Oxford. I'm in the middle of uh, pulling some things together for our Indiegogo campaign. There are some things that we're going to need to cover. Uh, our expenses are paid in terms of the trip and our 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 stay there and even our transportation in the country. Everything is set, but there are some things that uh, we're going to need to pay for when it comes to the production of our documentary and some of the shows and so forth. So uh, that'll be up uh, pretty soon. Uh, probably won't be uh, up in time for this show's uh, show notes, but be on the lookout for that. All right. Well, thanks a lot, and bye bye. The Theology Podcast
1: is the ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. To learn more about the church, you can visit
2: Trinity Reformed Kirk.com. Trinity Reformed K I R K.com.